Our God has been so wild lately. He doesn't seem to listen. He doesn't obey my commands, and we can't even bribe him with treats. He's gotten so out of hand, he may even have to be put down. God is not the problem here. The problem is the people who want to be the leader of the pack. We reintroduce God. We retrain people. You're listening to The God Whisperers. Hey there. Hi there. Ho there. Welcome to the God Whisperers Little Mickey Mouse Club kind of swirlers looking at me like that nuts already. <laughs> Man, we're off to a bad start already here. He's Craig this D'Onofrio. Is, and uh, he's Bill Swirler. All right. We are the God Whisperers as long yes, as we're we off the script. <laughs> Today we have a very special program. Michael Spencer, also known as the Internet Monk. You can find him at internetmonk.com. The famous. Famous Internet, Internet Monk. Monk. This, is, this is a high honor for the God he Whisperers. He has written an article that has found its way into the Christian Science Monitor, and it's all about evangelicalism and the death of it. He says within the next 10 years, gang, this is going to be a very interesting program given my fundagelical past and this is going to be a lot of fun. Bill, if people want to find us on the internet, where do they go? They would go www.godwhispers.com. They would indeed. And, and they would find us there. And if they wanted to email us? Uh, similarly, godwhispers at gmail.com. And if you want to call us on the God Whispers hotline, it's Manly Doctors 13, <laughs> Manly DRS 13. Now, don't ask me the number because you it don't slipped have my it. mind. All right, that's for the second half hour. Nice <laughs> It's going. one of those numbers that's hard to remember, and, and uh, yeah, it's kind of crazy. Well, we're talking today with uh, Michael Spencer, and uh, we're, this is actually a first for the God Whispers. We're, we're using the technology. Actually, we're, we're mid-tech. We are now into the we're, 21st century. We're, we're, we're on a standard phone line, but, uh, but we are talking to him, and, and he's somewhere in Kentucky in a, in a bunker somewhere, and... Uh, just a quick introduction, as, as Craig says, uh, Michael is the Internet Monk at internetmonk.com, uh, probably one of the most uh, popular Christian blog sites around. And, and I, I think, uh, just personally, I think he does a magnificent job of bringing together a bunch of people into conversation uh, in a relatively cordial way, which is kind of rare in Christianity, where uh, you know people aren't at each other's throats. Uh, he also does a, a, a blog or a site called uh, Jesus Shaped Spirituality. And uh, is the moderator of that uh, that that drunken mess, uh, the Boar's Head Tavern, of which uh, <laughs> many friends of mine have been voted off the island on that one. <laughs> oh. and, and rightly so. And rightly so. That's right. Um, but uh, Michael, welcome to the God Whisperers. Thank you, guys. It's a real honor to uh, to be on the second best podcast on the internet. <laughs> yeah, we appreciate that <laughs> plug. By the way, you know, I think we have six or eight listeners, and uh, you have uh, you actually know approximately how many how many people listen to uh, your podcast. Uh, the maximum I've had is about twenty five hundred. Uh, twenty five hundred. I, I usually get between fifteen hundred and two thousand uh, downloads. So uh, that's a huge surprise. That's a uh, not anything I take nearly as serious as I take blogging, so that's been a, a very nice surprise. Well, your your blogs are always what I, what I appreciate about them is that they they have content, but they also have that little open ended uptick at the end, inviting um, what I would call an interesting comment stream. <laughs> And uh, you draw from all over the place. You got the the Orthodox crowd uh, trailing along, and some diehard. Uh, they look like Catholic converts from evangelicalism. So there's a certain zeal there that's always uh, fun. But very well informed comment stream. Lots of lots of good perspectives, and uh, and uh, I would say really um, lively conversation going. So you're, you're kind of internet ecumen ecumenism going on there. 
Yeah, I've, I've uh, always thought that one of the things that we could do better is talk to each other, and I guess uh, uh, God has given me some gifts in that area. I'm going to Cornerstone 09 this year to, uh, instead of teach seminars, I'm going to just basically moderate uh, various conversations on uh, various topics involving all different seminar presenters. So um, if if that's something that I, that I can do, uh, I in, enjoy it. Now, uh, Blogs let you ban people who kind of ruin that, so that's a, <laughs> a nice thing you can't do in real life unless you use violent means. But, <laughs> yeah, right. uh, I enjoy I enjoy listening to perspectives, particularly the ones that I don't hear in my environment, like Lutheranism uh, and Orthodoxy, particularly. And uh, that's been one of the nice things about InternetMonk.com in the last year especially. You know, Michael, you could take uh, Pat Kyle and Ted Rosenblatt from... Uh, New Reformation Press with you. There are a couple of big boys. They could uh, thin the herd for you a little bit if people get out of control. I'm afraid of those guys. <laughs> yeah, I, I would be. Um, the the uh, bo- both of them are quite sizable, and yeah. and in fact, uh, when Pat was on my board of elders, uh, I often just took him along for protection. So it, it was. It, it's it, yeah, I felt safe. <laughs> it's like the chaplain always has his right hand man with a gun. You know, right, it, it's, right. it's it's a good thing. Um, your article. The coming evangelical collapse predicts that uh, American evangelicalism will experience a catastrophic collapse within 10 years uh, involving, you say, millions of evangelicals quitting, thousands of ministries ending, Christian schools going into rapid decline, and the arrival of a militant anti-Christian culture in America. Um, I think, you know, my first reaction when I read this, is this um, more of the same sort of doom and gloom that we seem to be hearing with the advent of Obama and, uh, and you know, the rise of all these polls that say Christianity is going down the tubes in America and will be under Sharia law within 25 years? Um, or uh, are you perhaps the Peter Schiff of the evangelical world uh, predicting a collapse in the midst of prosperity? I'm uh, definitely number two. Uh, first of all, what uh, made it to the Christian Science Monitor was a 1,500-word version of uh, three much longer posts. So I would warn anybody who looks at the Christian Science Monitor version that they would uh, get the better picture to go to internetmonk.com and read the original posts. Um, I do think in 10 years we're going to see uh, the onset of some fairly drastic decline in evangelicalism. There are several reasons for that, but if I were going to put one up on the board, it would be that evangelicals made a decision in the post-war era to make church growth a guiding principle that resulted in the dominance of the megachurch option as the model for church and the megachurch option has basically failed to do everything a denomination, excuse me, a movement needs to do to continue into the future strongly. The megachurch model is set up for collapse, and uh, I just believe it's just about time to pay the piper, and we're going to start seeing it in the next 10 to 20 to 25 years. You know, I I grew up in the evangelical world in Southern California with the Jesus people at Calvary Chapel. I worked for Maranatha Music and all of that. And 
since the early 70s, I was used to going to a church with, I don't know, 15,000 people or something ridiculous. They had three, four services packed out with an overflow room and everything else. And that kind of has become the accepted model. And there's a lot of pride and arrogance that goes with that. And, you know, we have 20,000 members and, and all this kind of thing. And it's interesting that coming into the Lutheran church, now I pastor a church with 75, 80 members total. Uh, but in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, we have 2.5 million as a total membership in our church body. And when you look at that, it dwarfs the mega churches, but the mega churches get so much more attention. I think of, uh, I always like to call it uh, Lake Wobegon, Willow Creek. Um, and they recently seem to have come to a place of repentance, realizing that they weren't making Christians at all. They were just uh, kind of creating a nice warm place for people to go on Sundays. Have you done much homework on that? Well, uh, it's interesting that you mentioned Willow Creek, because uh, what really uh, sort of threw my switch was a number of uh, statements that I was hearing from different places in evangelicalism that kind of made me think we need to connect the dots here. One was the past president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Frank Page, uh, I guess this was about three years ago, uh, said something that in the SBC will generally get you thrown out fast. He said, half our churches will be dead in 25 to 35 years. That was a shocking statement in the SBC context. Then you had the reveal study say that 25% of Willow Creek's members said, we're ready to leave right now. Hmm. Well, this sort of thing, along with uh, the heiress data, which we'll talk about, I'm sure, somewhere here, uh, really tells us this, that uh, evangelicalism has become a movement that uh, has so de-stressed church membership, has so uh, de-stressed passing on the core doctrines of its faith, has banked so much on growth methodologies and culture war motivation that it's got a vast number of people who are basically just hanging on by a fingernail. And uh, the reason they're going to leave so quickly, I tell everybody, is they're barely there anyway. I, I don't know if you've had this experience, Bill, but I've had several people come into my church from Biola University, and, and they come through the catechism class, and they start out hating infant baptism and rejecting the Lord's Supper and, and our understanding of it. And, you know, through catechesis, through study, they, they come around. And one of the last things that falls is just a willingness to become a member of a church, because they grew up in churches like I did, where there was no formal membership. Right. And we have a confirmation, right, that basically— you know, you swear your allegiance to this faith, and people will come up to that point and then disappear suddenly. Have you had that problem, Bill? Yeah, I I think you're 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 right to an extent here that that uh, there's a reticence to commit. Um, I think it's in the water, if not not the air. Uh, I, I think it's in the in the culture, and and I, I wonder whether evangelicalism, which tends to ride with the culture, just kind of adopted that. As, as part of its paradigm. The other thing that I see is they don't stick necessarily terribly well either. I have this theory that yeah. people rarely shed their primary theologies. Hmm. They might swap their churches now and then, but it's very difficult to to get their primary theologies out of them. You know, if you're raised Roman Catholic, you got those reflexes built into you. Or if you're raised Lutheran, 
uh, no matter where you go, you got these these reflexes that that have been instilled from childhood. So um, that that's a tough one, Michael. Um, I. I'm I'm fascinated here about the megachurch and what you perceive as its inherent instability. Uh, the reason it fascinates me is that uh, our our church body has an utter fascination, if not love affair, with the the megachurch model. Oh, it's and, voyeuristic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> and so a lot of what you say uh, is going to cause us to sort of perk our ears and open our eyes too, because it may be predicting a collapse within our circles as well. Uh, can you are, can you talk a little bit more about what is it about the megachurch model that makes it inherently unstable? Well, first of all, uh, I want to say that evangelicalism is a very diverse movement, and megachurches are a very diverse lot. Uh, I, I want to be very clear that there are many megachurches doing many things right. I do not participate in any kind of blanket denunciation of megachurches. There are many evangelical megachurches that I uh, have great ad- admiration for. But I think there's a large number of evangelical megachurches and those attempting to follow in their path, both within evangelicalism and, as you're pointing out, outside of it, um, who, are, um, who just have a fetish for uh, the whole numerical orientation uh, the big production entertainment appeal aspect, um, because it is part of what our culture honors as being valuable. A stadium full of people obviously must have something right, even if it's Joel Osteen with a stadium full of people. Right? It, there must be something right. That's just the way our our culture thinks. We can't imagine that 100,000 people would ever be in a stadium and be and be wrong, which, of course, is just irrational. <laughs> it's the old, um, it takes we, a crowd to draw a crowd, right? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, something else that's of real concern uh, that often doesn't get talked about is leadership. Uh, transitioning from charismatic leader to secondary leader and onward is, is not an easy thing to do. Megachurches have to make decisions about church government issues and these sorts of things that they're not prepared for because most of them are very personality-driven. You don't see successful megachurches with Joe Average Preacher very often. That's, a, uh, that's, that's part of the, uh, the uh, formula that, again, I think is inherently unstable. The, these are things that basically build an elaborate house of cards uh, if along with these things you do some solid things, you will see better results. But most megachurches don't. Back to church membership, church membership has become practically a dirty word among many evangelicals mm-hmm. because of the fascination with the megachurch. Why should we treat it as a congregation when you can get a much bigger audience? And, of course, that question just answers itself. One thing that comes up a couple of times, and in the sh- the short article, I've got the short article in front of me from the Christian Science Monitor, the print article, uh, is the the inability to to hand on the faith to the children. Um, you know, I liken the Christian faith in this sense to a relay race, where at some point in the race you have to do better than the U.S. Olympic team, and you have to be able to hand on that baton while running together, and then the next generation takes it up. Can you comment a bit on, on where the breakdowns have been in terms of the, the uh, to use a dirty word, the indoctrination of the young? 
Well, I, I can comment on it because uh, I'm 52, and I started working with young people when I was 18. And except for four years as a pastor, where I was still involved working with student ministry, I've worked with students my entire career. So I know exactly what what is going on here. Uh, in the post-war era, um, evangelicalism's first uh, movement towards this current model came in its youth ministries. Uh, everybody who knows the history of evangelicalism knows that Willow Creek is a grown-up youth group. They're really the story of this entire movement. That is a that is a youth group that literally grew up into a church, and that's become the story across the board. Now, within evangelical youth ministry, it became apparent as far back as the 70s that the methodology, the young life, I'll call it, methodology, not to insult young, young life, but this uh, very, very relational, very activity-oriented methodology was going to be at odds with the need to produce real disciples and pass on that core faith, the need for cate- catechesis. That was not uh, a situation that was ever resolved. Uh, youth ministry and evangelicalism has been carrying this with it. And, of course, I think we just have to say, in retrospect, we decided to win the war on the side of numbers rather than on the side of producing real disciples. And now we have a fascinating situation. We have large numbers, large numbers of folks who are very motivated by culture war issues, very excited about the next big praise band concert, have no idea what the Trinity is or what the authority of Scripture is or anything else. In in our tradition, um, part of that baton that's handed on, uh, we, we would we would say it's it's a threefold. One is scripture, uh, the second is catechism, and then the third is is hymn book or you know the the liturgy and the hymnody that that sort of embody our tradition. And these three things together are what we try to sort of package and hand on to the rising generation, teach them how to use the tools, and and hopefully they'll do a better job with it than we did. Um, is there something comparable in evangelicalism, or is the lack of those things part of the problem? Uh, the lack of those things is the uh, the uh, problem. Um, you know, the most cogent critique of evangelicalism I ever read was by somebody who was not writing about evangelicals, nor was he one. Was, uh, Louis, Bo- Louis Bo- Boyer, the Roman Catholic uh, writer who wrote Spirit and Forms of Protestantism. He basically very eloquently said that what's going to happen is that Protestantism is going to say that a relationship with God is all that matters and eventually cut away everything else. Now, we can debate what he said there, but in terms of evangelicalism, it's just amazingly true. Relationship with Jesus, a very amorphous phrase, is becoming all that matters. And the speed with which confessions were taken out and shot, and uh, uh, the entire heritage of our hymnody was taken out and thrown out, and people who stood for it were told, you just need to go to another church. The speed with, with which that happened is really breathtaking. Again, all of it premised on the idea that if we get the crowd in, in here listening to little or nothing, we'll move them to a relationship with Jesus, whatever that means, and we've done what we're supposed to do. Evangelicalism has, has really deconstructed itself with its methodologies 
down to where there's very little there. And that's why, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this today, it puzzles me why more evangelicals are not lined up at the doors of certain churches. Uh, and uh, I wonder if that's maybe something those churches need to be thinking about. Well, I, I kind of contend that uh, real Christianity, as, as we understand it, especially as Lutherans, is for a dying people. Uh, it's for people who realize that they are sinful and in need of salvation, that without God, they are literally damned. And this is not popular in our culture. This isn't something that most people are willing to uh, investigate. They aren't willing to be honest enough with themselves to stand up and say, I'm a sinner in thought, word, and deed by what I've done and what I've left undone. And our churches in America these days tend to be run the way of the pop psychology and the big ideas of, of happiness in this life. And so it's this prosperity doctrine that pops up. It's uh, the glorious living. It's, it's uh, all of the theology of glory instead of the theology of the cross. Would you, would you agree with me on that or disagree? Uh, I think that Michael Horton called that out uh, uh, back many books back, <laughs> and uh, he was exactly right. Uh, it's a theology of, of, uh, of glory problem. And uh, within evangelicalism, with its entrepreneurial instincts, uh, which have some usefulness in some aspects, particularly missions and church planning and things like that, but the entrepreneurial instincts of so many evangelical leaders uh, means that uh, you just never have any idea what's going to, as I said, be eliminated or, or counted of no value whatsoever in comparison to what is of value, numbers, size, audience reaction, popularity, book sales, etc., etc., things like that. Uh, people have, have written me, well, I don't know, probably close to a thousand emails since this, this, this piece came out, and I do have some angry people who say, why are you saying all these terrible things about evangelicalism? My church isn't like that. And I'm grateful there are some people whose churches don't reflect this di diagnosis. But this is an accurate diagnosis of a large segment of our evangelical movement, and it can't go on forever. It's going to hit a wall pretty soon. Do you know of two, uh, very many megachurches that aren't anything more than a cult of personality? I, I think of the Vineyard. I went there for a few years back when John Wimber was still around, and uh, there were just people there in droves. And then after Wimber died, I went back and visited, and, and it was like a ghost town. It's um, it is <laughs> that's uh, what I was saying earlier. It's a uh, it's this transition leadership transition is one of the Achilles heels of the the movement. They could write a very interesting book on the different ways different evangelical churches have uh, you know dealt with that. For example, uh, C.J. Mahaney at uh, at uh, Sovereign Grace Church in Gaithersburg, Maryland, just suddenly named his uh, su su successor and got out of the uh, picture rather quickly. And uh, but then you you look at a place like Mars Hill up in Seattle, right. and you say, can Mars Hill be Mars Hill without Pastor Mark? I know Pastor Mark doesn't want to be the be all end all. But it's hard to see how Mars Hill is going to be Mars Hill without Pastor Mark. It's a difficult transition when it has been such an important component of your success. You know, it seems to me from uh, looking uh, looking on the from the outside in that there's a certain inevitability 
uh, to this because a lot there, a lot of investment is made in preaching and teaching, which is good. I mean, <laughs> that's that's the you know that's the uh, the stock in trade, but it it tends to be it, in my observation, it tends to be very personality driven. Um, in in the sacramental churches, there there tends to be now. Sometimes this leads to bad preaching or generic teaching, but but when it's running properly on all six cylinders or eight, depending on where you're going, um, the there tends to be this kind of interchangeability amongst pastors and the idea that it's not so much who the guy is, but the message. The the message predominates over the messenger. Uh, where I've had the same questions about these very popular uh, uh, groups like Mars Hill is, is boy, you're dealing with a megawatt personality behind that in Driscoll. And, uh, and well, is that transferable at all, or is that just basically inherent in that person? I think much of what Mark's done is transferable, but that, you know, it's like a great recipe. There's that one seasoning, that one element that makes it really unique and outstanding, and I think that's you know what he's what he's facing. I don't necessarily think those churches are facing what you were describing with the Wimber situation—an absolute washout. Mm. But uh, you know, it's it's a it's a significant part of what makes these these churches who they are, and. I know, for example, Driscoll works very hard now to put other people up front and make sure that he's not the only one there. But it's still, it's still very a very serious part of it. It's interesting to me what this does on the small scale. In my Southern Baptist tradition, what this has done is turned small churches into uh, churches that will get a pastor and and basically uh, run him through the mill and throw him out in between three and four years. The average pastoral space is a little over four. And, uh, and, and lots of those are very painful, negative experiences for everybody. They're looking for that pastor who will make growth instantly happen. When it's clear that this guy is not that guy, then he's gone. You are right. The sacramental church has potential for a much more stable situation, though it has its own its own problems, as you mentioned. It's interesting that you mentioned that. The the other day, I was at a cigar lounge, and a guy came in. He sat down. <laughs> I'm a Lutheran. I'm a Entire subject right oh, there. <laughs> and I was there with the strippers, and no, just kidding. <laughs> but no, I was at a cigar lounge, and this guy came down and walked in, sat down, and and uh, he had a textbook. I said, "What you reading there?" And it was a creation science book, which gave me a real opportunity to talk to him. He goes to Saddleback Community Church with Rick Warren. He told me that not too long ago, uh, Rick was suddenly ill, and there was no other pastor that could fill his shoes, I guess. And so they played a videotape of one of his old sermons. It's just utterly mind-numbing. When Rick Warren dies, you know, what will happen to Saddleback? And, and, and of course, you know, I, I'm kind of a student of Rick Warren. I have a lot of a, a appreciation for the way Rick Warren has has wrestled with what has happened, because the success that he's had there has been a tremendous surprise to him and to everybody. And uh, that is one of those things, that it gets larger than you are very quickly. Yeah. Uh, one of my friends at the Board's Head Tavern uh, went to a church the other day where they had a videotape of the pastor introducing a videotape of the pastor preaching. So. <laughs> 
<laughs> that that starts to get mathematically interesting at some point. We have an infinite regress. Uh, at, at some point, does the resolution in the videotape decline? or No, it's digital. Well, it's digital. What Everything. I was thinking is that he should send a videotape to the church of him attending church and putting $5 in the plate. <laughs> nice. Michael, we got to take a break. We'll be right back after these messages. Back to the God Whispers. I'm Craig D'Onofrio. And I'm Bill Swirla. We have Michael Spencer on the line, internet monk, theologian, blogger extraordinaire. Podcaster. Podcaster. He does it all. Glorious podcaster. The only podcast on the internet that may be better than the God Whispers, <laughs> but I don't think so. There you go. There you go. Welcome back, Michael. <laughs> Thank you. You know, before we get into this, uh, New Reformation Press has a DVD series called Singing the Faith. I know, Michael, you did a review on this just recently. A right? nice one, too. I just did. It's an absolute delight, and uh, I, I just haven't enjoyed a musical product like that in a very long time. It was, it was just a, a, a beautifully done, uh, wonderfully devotional, as well as informative presentation. I highly recommend it to anyone. You know, I, I'm going to recommend something since you like that so much. That comes out of the Good Shepherd Institute of uh, the Fort Wayne Seminary, and uh, they have a they have a conference every year. It's usually in November, and uh, I'd really suggest you might really enjoy just hanging out at the Good Shepherd Institute because uh, that that DVD I think represents the kind of stuff that they they produce, and it's one of the best conferences around. I think you I think just by the reading that I've done with your stuff, I think you get a real kick out of this conference. So if you get a chance. Thank you. If you get a chance, okay. just look it up. Tell them to send me a, uh, an invitation. I'd love to come. I'll, uh, I'll shoot you some links, but uh, it, it really is some of the finest stuff going at the, at the Fort Wayne Sem there. And, and the worship and the discussion and everything, I, I think you'd really get a, get a kick out of it enjoy it. Um, where are we going? We're going gonna to pick up with—I um, w- I want to pick up with a, uh, a, a question, a holdover from the last section. Uh, you, you talked about uh, the evangelicals are going to quit, and maybe even quit in droves, and maybe 25% of them are already on the launching pad. Where are they going to go? Well, let's uh, first start talking a little bit about uh, just this moving amorphous target that is evangelicals. One of the, one of the books that really uh, was helpful to me— was uh, Christine Wicker's book, The Fall of the Evangelical Nation. And one of the things she does in that book is say just exactly how many of them are there. Uh, As a Southern Baptist, I know a little bit about this. We claim to have 16.5 million members. I don't think anybody believes that under any possible scenario could we find more than 7 or 8 million. I think it would be considerably <laughs> less than that. A little, uh, little inflation there going on. The, uh, and, and we passed, after a three-year war at the convention, a, uh, a, a motion on integrity in the reporting of church membership, and you should have seen the fight. So uh, this, is, this is a very interesting and essential issue. Uh, then she says the National Association of Evangelicals claims 35 million. 
And uh, she then goes into uh, how credible is that and comes up with maybe an optimistic 15. So where are they going to go may be a version of where are they anyway. <laughs> where they are going to go, according to the ARIS data, and this is the, uh, the uh, very important study of religious statistics in the United States. It came out the same week as my, as my column. Uh, the ARIS data says the fastest-growing religious group in the United States is the non-religious, and that's where they're going. These are people who are not going down the road to the next church. They're not going across the street or across the Tiber or anyplace else. They're going nowhere. They were told it's just a personal relationship with Jesus. Why should they go anyplace if they're holding on to their Christian faith? And frankly, many are not going to hold on to their Christian faith. They probably won't add uh, much to the atheist numbers. That stands about 6% year after year after year. But the non-religious, the just I don't want to talk about that aspect of life, that's not on my menu, that is the fastest growing component of the United States religious scene, and a lot of them are going there. Some are going to Rome, some are going to the Orthodox, uh, some are going to their next, you know, their next evangelical or Pentecostal church. But uh, a lot of them, I think, are going to just vanish because they're barely there anyway. So they're, they're going to join the ranks of the I'm spiritual but not religious category, right? Some will, and some will just say, I think religion is just a topic best not talked about. Oh, they, they're going to totally privatize the thing at that point. I, I, I have more atheist students right now, more unbelieving students, non-religious students than ever in my 30-plus years of student ministry, they all come from evangelical families. Swear now, that, oh, sorry, go ahead. That's, that's, uh, this is something I think everyone in student ministry seeing. Uh, atheists and unbelievers have found their voice in the culture. That doesn't mean that people are going to identify overtly, strongly with them. But uh, their arguments are making real inroads. And just the whole view of the role of religion in our culture, the conservative culture war that so many people are tired of, the, uh, what they see as being a, a highly politicized religion. There's a lot of chaos out there in terms of, do I really want to be identified with that? So you have people stepping into the emerging church, stepping out of church. Some are becoming what I call the de-church, the alumni of the church, and I think a, a sizable segment will say it's just not something I, I care to even have as part of my life anymore. I contend that a lot of this is because people have come into evangelical churches where they aren't learning doctrine, they aren't learning anything of substance, they aren't even really learning the Word of God. And then when their life goes to crap, then all of a sudden they have no real foundation, nothing solid to lean on, and they just kind of check out of the church and say, well, I tried that, got the T-shirt, didn't like it. Uh, moving on to some sort of other spirituality. Do you think that that's a fair assessment? I think that it is, and I think this is the, the backside of uh, our involvement as evangelicals in various versions of the prosperity gospel. Now, we've had very few uh, in evangelicalism who are overt prosperity gospel preachers. But, I mean, good grief. Osteen just basically says that... Uh, you know, you can have your best life now. You can have the best parking spot. You can have the best job. 
that is that message in one form or another is throughout American Christianity and especially in evangelicalism. Come to church, your life will be better. Come to church, your marriage won't break up. Your kids will turn out nice. You'll get success principles. Uh, is this a recipe for disillusionment? I mean, it's an amazing setup, and and you are right. People on the other side of life's tragedies are going to find those answers completely inadequate. You know, I, I we use a, a variety of metaphors for the church. Um, one is the church's gymnasium, which I describe as that's where the spiritually fit go to bulk up and gawk in the mirror and, you know, kind of eyeball each other and, and that. Uh, okay. The other is the church's hospital, which actually is a rather ancient metaphor, but it still holds out what you're talking about here, Michael, is the 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 promise of 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 uh, of, of healing. It's a therapeutic model, and if I don't get better, then I got to go find a different physician, another hospital. And, and uh, let let me say this is a result of the loss of the Reformation gospel. It is a result of the loss of a strong message of justification by faith and most of all, a strong message of salvation by grace, not works. Uh, as, as Michael Horton has often pointed out, Osteen is nothing but a law preacher, and evangelicalism has become a moralistic movement. We're starved for the gospel. It's the gospel's message of God's incredible grace that is the, su- the sustaining backbone through life's tragedies. If you were working a system for everything to work out, you've got a crisis of an entirely different kind. You know, uh, you bring this up about Osteen. One of the best gospel uh, parables that Christ ever gave was the prodigal son. And I was listening to Osteen one night. I was channel surfing, came across him, and he, he actually—I almost fell out of my chair. I screamed at the TV and said a lot of words that I can't say here. But I actually heard him that's say— That's never stopped us before on That's a show, good point. <laughs> <laughs> I actually heard him say that the, the upshot— of the parable of the prodigal son is dressing for success. I, I couldn't believe it. This is this Seriously? Is, yeah. Because the 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 prodigal son actually came back in his poverty and that's why he was poor is because he wasn't he wasn't wearing the father's robes. He wasn't wearing the father's ring. Oh dear. And he came back in poverty because he was wearing the wrong clothes. <laughs> it was just like that explains o- that explains Osteen's wardrobe, you yeah. know. You know well, I, you were you were wanting me to fuss <laughs> I'll fuss that that uh, Reformation churches uh, that that know the Reformation gospel are needed now. It's a three alarm fire. I mean, it is a three alarm fire in terms of the truth of the the uh, the truth of the gospel. because they are swimming in an ocean of what you're talking about. They're swimming in an ocean of taking any Bible passage and making it say, here's a way. And, I mean, really, I find myself, quite honestly, tempted towards various kinds of atheism whenever I hear that sort of thing. I just look at the wall and say, this is not Christianity. I can't be associated with this. I'm not successful, and, uh, you know, I'm a failure in so many ways. I need Jesus, you know, to, to save me from the uttermost because of uh, what my life's like. It breaks my heart to think how many people are just brutalized daily by that kind of legalistic law, moralism preaching, disguised as how to encourage you and lift you up. And, and as we know, it's not encouraging at all. 
Well, you know, that seems to be inevitable. If you're going to either hitch your caboose to the culture wars or you're going to hitch up to the prosperity gospel or any other form of winning, cultural winning, uh, you're going to just lapse into the, the, the nastiest forms of legalism at that point. And, and it becomes entirely law. There is no gospel in that. Uh, there, there, there is no gospel, and unfortunately, I'm not even sure uh, anybody knows that there is no gospel. Uh, today, if you were to ask people what the gospel is, they would say, well, that nice young guy who smiles seems to be telling us good news about uh, how things can go better and, and how we can have our best life now. Well, I, f- I feel course, like a uh, winner, so it must be good news. Right. Uh, it must be good news if it's telling me this is what, how you're destined to win. Um, it really, it is, it is a pathetic situation. And, uh, I, I've had so many people, uh, but I sort of got famous off of Osteen posts. I was quoted in time over, uh, things that said about Osteen. I've been surprised at how many people, uh, I've known at all the churches I've served in various places who have criticized me for saying anything about that nice young man. Now, I don't really have any problems with him. I'm sure he's a great person. But as a deliverer of the message, it's just, it is just shocking. It's just shocking. Well, you know, it, it kind of gets to my third metaphor of the church, which I'm determined to get in here before the hour is up, and, and that is the church as hospice. I, I think this is an overlooked one, <laughs> that it's, it's the dying tending to the dying, but nobody's a winner in this thing, not even Jesus, who's kind of the biggest loser of them all in, in terms of the world's and the culture's assessment of what it means to win. And one of the ways I articulate this to my congregation is, I say it this way, if the only thing the Son of God ever did was die on a cross and rise from the dead, if that's all he ever did for you, that's more than enough. You know, he's got you covered. All the other stuff is Band-Aids that wash off ultimately in the shower. You know, even even you're being cured of some flu like Peter's mother-in-law or, or even, uh, dare I say, Lazarus raised from the dead. That's still just temporary measures. If, if all that Christ did for you is die for your sins on the cross and rise from the dead— that's sufficient, and that's that's you know that that's more than enough reason to gather and worship him. Oh, let me give you a couple of excellent uh, thoughts on that. My favorite theologian, Robert uh, Capon. Said oh yeah, that, uh, you're in good company here. You know, uh, <laughs> Jesus is uh, the lifeguard who doesn't pull you to shore and resuscitate you. He's a lifeguard who grabs you and drowns with you. Out <laughs> right the ocean. Yeah. There's that uh, great parable, and it was the foolishness of preaching, where where he says he, he, the lifeguard leaves a sign. Uh, on his on his lifeguard chair, where they you know he disappears into the waves and says, you know, don't worry, she's safe in my death. Uh, <laughs> you call that a gospel? Gonna, <laughs> that well, Robert Capon, I just God God bless him. Uh, <laughs> Heather King, who's a Roman Catholic writer who just wrote her uh, autobiography entitled Redeemed, has a point in there about where she went into a Catholic church for the first time and saw this that, this huge crucifix and said, uh, finally, a religion that understands what my life is like and is going to talk to me about God suffering with me. For whatever we might say about Roman Catholicism, that stark difference with the cheerful evangelicalism that, uh, that doesn't uh, see any theology of the cross worth talking about, it's very real. And uh, there are, if we'll just realize that this is not about the audience, it is, as you've said, about dying men and women. It's about the real life and the real suffering that goes on 
we need the real Jesus. We don't need this packaged, dressed up, uh, as you know, Mark Mark Driscoll says, uh, Christ in a dress with you know product in his hair, and you know shaped by this culture uh, to be acceptable to us. We need exactly what what Heather King encountered that that day. The one who says, "Well, I will die for you, and I'll suffer with you." You know, uh, you mentioned Robert Capon, who's uh, rescued me any number of times. Um, oh, I, 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 you know, I call him the, the the bad boy Episcopalian that gets it <laughs> at some really fundamental level. But love him on the parables. But but he quotes somebody whose name I've forgotten. But it, it's pertinent to your article, um, and it goes something like this: that a church that is not willing to die doesn't deserve to live. Hmm. Well, he's he's uh, so good at keeping in front of us that uh, at at the end, all we will be able to do is die in Jesus. So, well, the, and, uh, that's 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 what we're practicing for. The yeah, the follow up idea, though, Michael, is if your article's correct and there's a coming collapse, is this necessarily a bad thing? Well, in the third part of my article, I was clear that it's it is a it is a mixed bag. I mean, there's obviously some some aspects of this that I don't like. I don't like the fact that the Association of Theological Schools says right now that a third of their schools are in desperate situation financially and otherwise. I don't like the fact that a lot of mission sending agencies are probably in trouble. We haven't even mentioned in this podcast. One of the main factors that's about to happen, which is the, I would call it the final rollover of the greatest generation. Southern Baptists are the greatest denomination in evangelicalism. They have more, they have a larger percentage of people age 70 and over than anyone else. We know what the next 20 years holds there. And those are the people who fund Christian media, Christian schools, mission-sending agencies who are faithful givers. We all know, and I'm sure you, you gentlemen know well, that uh, you know, baby boomers, Generation X, Generation Y, their giving is an entirely different matter. So the, uh, the, what's going to happen in the coming evangelical collapse is going to sink a lot of things that have been afloat for a long time if we can't transition over to uh, finding ways to be supported by Christians whose giving patterns are very erratic. And I work for one of those ministries. We really do feel that. And uh, I think all of evangelicalism is going to feel it. So that's not a good thing. But there will be some good things, and that's why I I mentioned during the break church planning. I think that uh, that is the antidote, uh, not the cure, but that that is the best antidote for what's going on is for confessional churches to get their act together and plant new congregations. Do it the right way, but do it, because new congregations do the basics better, often, usually, than older congregations. They are more intentional. They have an opportunity, uh, an opportunity to do some things right that we haven't done right in the past. The Lutheran Church is heading off into two directions right now. One is liberalism, and the other one is into mainland evangelicalism, it seems. And then there are those who are trying to stay true to our beliefs. What do you see as the future for our churches? Well, I'm, I, I live in a very un-Lutheran area, so I'm no authority on Lutheranism. What I, I see is exactly what you're talking about. 
uh, fragmentation within uh, conservative Lutheranism, uh, people wanting to hitch their wagon to an evangelicalism that is plunging over the cliff, a uh, bad decision to hitch your wagon to, to those ideas and those, and those, and those thinkers. But um, uh, I, I think there are, uh, there are some wonderful uh, younger, committed Lutherans who I think understand they're in a strategic place right now in this evangelical situation. They are in a strategic place if they can overcome uh, ethnic boundaries, geographic boundaries, the boundaries of, of uh, being overly traditional, to, to, to reach out to a generation of people and to millions of people who are not excited about throwing the Christian faith overboard in favor of some sort of amorphous relationship with Jesus mediated through an entertainment venue. Uh, Lutherans need to get out there in the middle of the game. They need to get vocal. They need to let their articulate leaders have the largest possible venue. Look what a guy like John Piper from one church in Minneapolis has been able to do in influencing even evangelicalism for good. And I know there are, there are men like that in uh, Lutheranism. So I just pray to get in the ballgame because evangelicalism needs conservative Lutherans, conservative Anglicans, and others to get uh, out there and to show them there are more options than just nothing. You, you mentioned church planning. I was just named to the head of a small mission society, and uh, we're looking to do exactly that. The, the problem is, which paradigm should we use to plant churches? What, what do you see as the future of church planting? House churches, uh, warehouse churches, building new structures? What do you see there? Well, uh, one of the places that I'm probably fairly deficient in my understanding is that uh, I don't really understand how hierarchical churches uh, do it. I do understand how congregational churches do it. Uh, I don't understand uh, necessarily how uh, 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 churches that have to uh, maybe line up more things than my tradition says you have to line up in advance do it. Uh, what I think has to happen is um, simply saying, how can we hold on to the essentials of who we are, but take the best insights of what we call missional Christianity, which is Christianity lived outside of the building, Christianity that acted engages the culture that's not afraid to go out there to the uh, to the uh, place where we're smoking cigars or uh, uh, anything else and, and to you know go out there and engage people in conversation and in ministry where they are can if we can find a way to take confessional Christianity in a missional direction and not just say we'll only deal with our own, I think something really good will happen. I just put a piece up at internetmonk.com about uh, uh, John Yates and Falls Church, which is a former Episcopal church in um, Falls Church, Virginia, when they got loose from their association with uh, the Episcopal Church in the United States, they immediately started church planning. And of course, uh, church planning Anglican churches. And uh, their church is excited. Uh, Fox commentator Fred Fred Barnes is a part of one of their new church plants and says it's the most exciting thing they've done in years. I think it's exciting for our members to say maybe one thing I can do at this stage of my life is be part of a new church plant and not just part of the older congregation. So uh, hold on to the best of what we have, 
but be open to the best of insights from networks like Acts, Acts 29 uh, and uh, others who know how to do entrepreneurial church planning. You don't have to buy it all. But uh, you can certainly use those insights. See, this is a the, you've you've kind of gotten into a fascinating topic. And I, I'd I'd really like to go kind of off script and be be conversational about this last few minutes that we have because um, part of our church body in in the Lutheran Church, especially the LCMS, really wants to engage in church planting in some serious way. But there's a problem, uh, and I think you you, get, you got me thinking in what you just said, is is we are both hierarchical and congregational. We're, we're kind of neither fish nor fowl. We're hierarchical with respect to our governance, our synodical governance, but we're congregational with respect to our congregations, you know, where the rubber meets the road. And, and this has kind of like hampered our church planning. Do you do it out of... Um, do you do it out of the, the church body, hierarchically, or do you do it out of the congregation, congregationally? And, and we don't know. We just we don't know which to do. Uh, it seems like the trend is toward congregational. So congregations spawn congregations rather than relying on the government to do it, so to speak. You got a, you got a thought on that? You are, you are correct. Uh, I mean, I, I, one of the ways that I first got excited about church planning was I was doing some pulpit supply for a uh, for a PCUSA church, and I was uh, asked to go to a presbytery meeting. And in that particular night, they were debating something involving a new church plant in the Lexington area, a, ch- a plant that eventually was closed. And listening to the micromanagement going on uh, at that level, and coming from a Southern Baptist tr- tradition where all church planning is done through congregational sponsorship and long-term congregational commitment to that new congregation, uh, I was just, I was completely just de- depressed by what I was, what I was watching. Now, I, I would say the best thing to do is find five good church plants and maybe from different traditions and just go and sit down and listen, ask questions, uh, be teachable, and then go back and say, how can this be implemented within our structure? What can we take what can we change? What can we what can we uh, do? But let me go back to say the excitement that congregations feel when they begin to realize we are resourcing a new congregation. We can't be that, but we can resource that. We can send some people. We can have some ties. We can make things happen as the mother church, the sponsoring church. I think that's what you want. That's the excitement people feel over church planning is not only being willing to start it, being willing to go and be part of it, but being willing to help resource it and nurture it and to, to see themselves being part of the ongoing birthing of of new vital centers of Christianity. Okay, I want to follow up with that because it's like I've, I've got a prime opportunity here. i got a Baptist and, yes, and and a thinking one, and you you also engage um, the greater the greater Christian Christian world too. Um, think in terms of your conservative Anglicans, uh, your Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholics, Lutherans, um, the people that have a strong liturgical tradition that have a deep have deep roots in Christian history and a knowledge of that uh, that are sacramental. Um, how? How does this translate into church planting? This is where we get hung, you see. This is, this is one of our problems, is that a lot of people seem to think you, in order to be a successful church planter, you have to stop being Lutheran, stop being conservative Anglican, stop being whatever. And, and I think this is where, where the trouble is. From the outside, from your perspective, uh, kind of 
comment on that or help help me understand my dilemma here. <laughs> uh, well, I have a very close friend. He's one of the uh, the liturgical gangsters on InternetMonk.com who has planted an Amia church in uh, in uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, I worship with them once per month. And uh, I've I've watched very closely what he's what he's done. Uh, they're still sharing space with a, a another congregation. They uh, they use uh, 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 guitars uh, to do a mixture of traditional hymns and uh, newer worship oriented music, not not praise music really, but more contemporary hymn type music. Uh, they use a lot of the gifts of those sorts of, of folks. They uh, they have a nice mixture of the charismatic and the liturgical, which I think is, is very, uh, a lot more natural than a lot of people think. The language of liturgy has a lot of elements in it that more charismatic-oriented people can actually relate to. I think they have, they have, they have played very strongly on the Eucharist, which is a problem area in evangelicalism. Many evangelical megachurches never have the Lord's Supper mm-hmm. at all. Mark Driscoll has it every Sunday. Mm. A lot of people don't, they don't realize that. Driscoll's church only does traditional hymns. They do it through contemporary bands, but they only do hymns and music out of, out of Scripture. That there are little insights there about, okay, we want to hold on to things, but willingness to do the necessary changes to be a good church plant that I think are wise. And then, of course, just stay with it. Plant where there's possibility of real growth. My friend's church is in proximity to a large evangelical school and seminary. It's obviously been helpful. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's some, of, some of what comes to mind. Michael Spencer from InternetMonk.com. We're out of time. Thanks so much for being on The God Whisperers. Thank you, us. Michael. Thank you, guys. It's been a real uh, pleasure. And Hope to do it again. Michael, Jesus is your friend. <laughs> Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. He taught me how to live my life as it should be. He taught me how to turn my cheek when people laugh at me. I've had friends before, and I can tell you that he's one who will never leave you flat. Jesus is a friend of mine. Jesus is my friend. Jesus is a friend of mine. I have a friend.